What's up, everybody? Chris Dover here. Hey, trader at Pollinate Trading and uh, the proprietor there as well. Uh, I'm joined as always with Crypto Zurich. Crypto Derek Zoolander, uh, my uh, my menacing, uh, I don't know, cohort, co <laughs> co fighter, sidearm wheel. I don't know, dude. Um, and today, <laughs> today we got Nikhil, uh, who is who goes by Squish Chaos on the Twitters. Uh, give a quick intro on him. He's a retail investor, and we'll get into. Uh, kind of probably that discussion too, for sure, which is a big subject I've been uh, like, people have this whole like, oh, crypto, I'm just a retail guy or whatever. And like retail can run circles around institutions. I love it. Um, currently investigating DeFi and other asymmetrical opportunities. He is a recent grad uh, of medical school. And in a few weeks, we'll be doing his residency. So while you guys were all just sitting around staring at charts and being lazy, this guy wrote a 79-page research report on Ethereum while completing medical school. So everybody here feels bad about ourselves. Uh, it's it's we'd like to have a, a somebody up there setting the bar. He is also much like a lot of us here, irresponsibly long Ethereum. And uh, yeah, let's. Um, what's up? Welcome. To hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, you're coming at us from the uh, global headquarters of Squish Chaos and uh, in the uh, western, southwestern part of this country, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been moving around a lot since graduation. Uh, I did med school in Manhattan oh. uh, at Mount Sinai. And so uh, I'm moving to Denver for residency. So it's a whole thing. I'm, uh, you know, my, my parents live in Austin. So I'm, I'm just moving around a ton right now, <laughs> but I'm in Austin right now. So it's been good. Cool. Yeah. We're, uh, we're down the road a little bit from you on the other side of the Rockies here in Arizona. And, uh, Derek there is in, in the land of wildfires at the moment. Uh, it's pretty sunny today, actually. I got to give it up. Uh, never, never disappoints. You know, we always got a good amount of sun. It's probably like 70 degrees, you know, can't complain. <laughs> Shouldn't complain. All right. Um, I threw out uh, some questions to the folks in the uh, in the trading lab, uh, our our degenerate traders. We call them DGens, uh, who've you know done pretty fantastically this year. So happily they wear that tag. Uh, so Squish or Nikhil <laughs> uh, reached out to me a month or so ago. I would say maybe a little bit longer. Um, and said, hey, I just wrote this 79-page research report on Ethereum and why I think it's going to 150,000. Um, and I was like, okay, like, as we just said, my, my inbox is not your to-do list. Thanks for reaching out. No big deal. I got plenty going on. And when you said 79 pages, I was like, really not that <laughs> excited about, uh, about getting into this. Um, and then you hit me up a couple more times uh, and, and I was like, okay, you know what? And, and you hit me up with some good, um, uh, good, like little bits of it. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like, Hey, I've done math. And I think this is, you know, like, this is what it is, or, you know, measured the distance from the moon to earth. And this is why I think this is the thing, or, you know, whatever, like there's no sun signs or anything. It was actual um, Great research. And one of the, I'm, I'm going to give it to you here to chat about, but first, one thing I want to say is uh, what we find in crypto is the, 
uh, fundamental type analysis actually is so much more useful than it is tends to be in, in more um, uh, mature markets like equities and such. Uh, and, and people get caught up in the, the technical analysis side of crypto, but uh, this was, this was great. And this, you know, for what it's worth, this really helped kick off a whole new strategy for us in the, in, at uh, Pollinate. Uh, so I will thank you for that. And thank you for your persistence in uh, getting me to uh, take a look. So let's start. Let's start with the headline, 150,000, and let's just back it up from there. Let's let's start unpacking the route that we get there. Sure, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people are like, 150,000, that's just impossible. You know, <laughs> they're like, that's a, you know, large, north of $15 trillion market cap. Uh, just, you're never going to see that happening. Uh, and I want to clarify that, you know, in my report, when I lay out my target, I actually say my base case is 30 to 50,000. Uh, and I think we can get to 150,000. Uh, but the way that happens is an illiquid speculative mania. And so uh, that can sound completely baseless. Uh, if I'm just basically telling, if you read that as me just saying like, things are going to get crazy, like pick a number. Um, but it's not when you read my report, because, uh, what I do is I outline a lot of very concrete ways that liquidity is going to be drained from the market and that demand is going to dramatically ramp up. And those are the conditions under which, uh, you start to see prices that you just don't think you didn't think were possible before. Uh, so my report, I, I lay out some valuations as well. Cause I think that's another thing where it's like, uh, it helped. It's like, sure, we could go to 150,000 on just illiquidity and demand, but it really helps if there are narratives that actually support valuations that go that high. Uh, because people who are buying at, uh, you know, 80,000 at 100,000, um, sure, they might just buy because they think, you know, this thing, they can flip it. But if they're buying because they have a valuation model that also kind of supports that, that adds some conviction. So yeah, so the path that I kind of go through to lay out my 150,000, um, I start with something I call the triple halving event, uh, which is kind of a, a big catalyst, I think that's coming up uh, over the course of the next six months to really move price significantly. Um, and then I talk about how uh, when price moves, that also triggers narrative. And so that means when, when Ethereum goes up a lot more than other uh, cryptocurrencies because of specific to Ethereum catalysts, people start looking like, is there anything unique about Ethereum? Uh, and I think they're going to find a lot that is different about Ethereum than you see in the rest of the crypto space. Uh, and there are certain mechanisms that um, are going to be taken advantage of that will also reduce liquidity. So I think that combination uh, is kind of how I... I get to these insane price targets and we can talk about later. There's also valuation models that I kind of I go through a few different valuation models that people have used for Bitcoin and Ethereum and show how, uh, you know, I think Ethereum can get definitely north of 50,000, but often on a ramp to a hundred thousand plus on, on all of the different valuation models. So uh, jump in anytime you, you want, uh, Aaron, but uh, one of the, we, we ran an experiment this past month, not we, the, the crypto world, I guess, where an experiment was ran. We saw Bitcoin drop from 62,000 down to whatever, 40, 
29. Yeah, but, but not that days. specifically. Oh. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, prior to the, to the big drop. Uh, oh, yeah. Ethereum went from about 2,000 to 4,400 4, in about two weeks. If, I, if my mm. timing is right, I don't have the chart in front of me, but I remember looking at that quite uh, happily being, um, you know, a lot more exposed to Ethereum personally. Uh, we did see exactly what you're talking about. And we can kind of go back and look at that period in time and see what people were talking about. Uh, what was the narrative that changed while, you know, 4,400 Ethereum was printing or 4,390 or whatever it was, was printing. Uh, there was definitely a narrative change. Bitcoin's old and slow. Bitcoin, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's just a store of value. It doesn't have utility. The ultrasound money world of Ethereum, um, kind of that, that meme took off as well past few weeks. What were the things that you saw, uh, Akhil, in, the, in that period? Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I agree with you. I think there's a, a, the beginnings of a narrative change. I definitely hadn't seen a lot of that before. And when we were around 4,000, it started to shift. Uh, I will say since we've crashed, uh, most of that discussion has been limited to the Ethereum crowd again. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the people who are outside of Ethereum who are all like starting to be like, maybe this is interesting, completely uh, stopped talking about it since it's crashed. And so I think there's just a ton of room for adoption and conviction in the story to change. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's starting to, it's starting to get people like there are, there are absolutely factors that make Bitcoin really, really unique asset. Um, and definitely an asset that a lot of other, uh, crypto opportunities just, it, they can't really compete with certain aspects like the security of the network. Um, but, uh, I definitely think that Ethereum can't, uh, and I think it will compete more and more. And I think one thing that's going to be really interesting is certain dynamics uh, around holding it in a portfolio are going to change. So, so for instance, when when Bitcoin was at twenty billion dollar market cap, uh, looking at the digital gold narrative was really attractive because that offered, I don't know, like fifty times more than that, more than that upside, right? Because how do you get to ten trillion dollars? But but now that Bitcoin is uh, you know, around a trillion dollar market cap, you have 10 X upside. If you think, if you think uh, that it's going to be digital gold and that's the, that's the max opportunity. And so there is definitely a symmetry where a lot of the Bitcoin bulls have to kind of say, it's not just digital gold. It's also the macro environment we're in uh, means that a store of value should have like a larger role in the asset space. Uh, the portfolios are going to need the more it's going to take more assets than gold ever has because um, because of these unique like Fed printing narratives. Um, but you know that's you kind of have to make that kind of argument and you're limited to to like narrative to convince people that you're right. Um, with Ethereum, I think what's going to change is you're going to get a lot of the same store of value narratives, but I can also just convince you with uh, more traditional mechanisms like a dividend yield and things like that. And when I am convincing a you know a pension fund to buy Bitcoin, I'm convincing them like convincing them to buy gold would be pretty hard too. They don't usually have more than a one to two percent allocation, if at all. Mm -hmm. And so compare that to the allocation they have to things that have yields. Now we're talking serious money, right? And it makes sense. Um, yields are are much more tangible. Um, they don't necessarily if they collect the yield from crypto, they don't have to keep it in crypto. They could. 
they could uh, rebalance those yields out to um, other assets. So the dynamics get interesting when you actually have competition in the space, right? And um, Ethereum's at the size right now uh, where it can really compete. Uh, and I talk about two upcoming changes, EIP-1559 and the merged proof of stake that we'll have to talk about a little bit. Uh, but those are the two catalysts that I think really make Ethereum competitive with Bitcoin on a kind of larger scale. Yeah, so July 14th, we've got... Uh, no, Aaron, I saw you were getting ready to go there. Oh, no, no. I mean, uh, that was honestly just like a really great summation of kind of like, you know, what's going on. I guess, honestly, kind of... Because I'm kind of in a similar world. I would say I'm like a little more of a DeFi maximalist in some ways. Like, to be honest, like most of what I hold is like DeFi stuff. And obviously I have F because that's like the main SOV for like really most DeFi protocols. Um, and so like kind of just piggybacking off of that, like I have been talking to like, I guess, older people or just anybody that's trying to get invest invested in Ethereum. And they, I, I try to pitch them that dividend and yield stuff. Right. And they, they, they are receptive, but it's really funny. Like for some reason they still can't wrap their head around Ethereum and like personally, cause I'm a tech person, like I got it pretty quickly and quickly like thought, Hey, this is way more interesting than Bitcoin, even though like I'll preface Bitcoin is very interesting and it, you know, whatnot. I respect it. The security, like you said, is, is amazing, but you're right. It's like a 10 X from here, probably like it, in a reasonable world. I mean, of course it could go to a million, uh, you know, in the right circumstances for sure. Um, but like, yeah, like aside from the dividend yield, like what are kind of things that you pitch to people to kind of like, I don't know, make them a feel a little bit more comfortable about Ethereum. Cause you know, some people might just be like, oh, I don't understand it. Digital gold. I'll buy some of that, you know? So. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, I will tell you, it's not easy because even though I have infinite conviction, I think what makes it an opportunity is that it's it's hard to wrap your mind around. Uh, there's so many layers, right? So like I have a thesis, but uh, you know, if you look at my report, the first like one third of it is laying out a framework. So when, when I write a report on an equity, I don't spend the first one third of it explaining like how does a discount cash flow model work because everyone knows how that works, you know, and I can just assume that. Um, but when you look at crypto, you have to like first introduce your theory of like how do I approach crypto because everyone approaches it differently and no one really knows what like the holy grail of crypto valuation even means. Uh, and, and even my, the, the approach I introduced was even then it was, I looked at fundamentals in the way that they move narratives, but I still didn't actually ground anything in an intrinsic value estimate the way I would look at equities, right? Even in this report, I think I'm, I'm working on some stuff. I think it's possible. Um, but I think it's really something that a lot of people outside of crypto actually do understand, uh, and are, are probably wise to be skeptical of, uh, which is that you can't value a, a crypto token the way that you value a stock. You know, if you own Chainlink, you can't just be like, oh, great. Like I'll just think about this the same way as I think about Disney shares, which doesn't work that way. Uh, yeah. and so that doesn't mean that Chainlink doesn't have value. I think that's where a lot of people go wrong is they skip to be like, well, that must be useless. It must be worthless, but, uh, it just means you have to get more creative. We're in a new space. These are, these are new types of assets, right? So the kinds of arguments that I made were still, I think a little bit more traditional 
So I talk about, okay, you might not understand what crypto is, but I bet you get the simple concept that, you know, prices are a function of supply and demand. Supply is going to go down. Demand is going to go up. I have a catalyst that tells me that this will happen, not just like in the infinite ambiguous future, but in the next, you know, starting in the next six months and over the course of the next 18. Um, and then I can also just tell you that story. I can say, um, Visa, you know, you know, you have a Visa credit card, like Visa is going to accept stable coins. Um, uh, you know, I can explain what NFTs are by connecting it to concepts people have around art. Um, and, and I think where the Ethereum pitch works well is that you can hit it from a number of different angles. Uh, with Bitcoin, it's like ride or die on a single narrative, right? It's like if they get the monetary policy thing, then you're in. Uh, you got a Bitcoin maxi. And if they just like aren't, are not convinced or, or they're convinced, but that means to them like a 1% of their portfolio and they're still like, of course, I'd have a huge equity allocation and you're not going to get much more than that. Ethereum, you really, you can hit from all different angles and that makes it hard to brand in like a quick pitch. Um, but it's also, I mean, it's what makes the space so great, you know? Yeah, man, I, I'd agree totally on that. Um, like, I don't know if I, I like digging deeper into your, your kind of report. Um, actually, there was some like, the thing that kind of interested me just because like I'm pretty deep in the weeds compared to most people. So I kind of like think I like most of the stuff you mentioned, I'm like, yeah, like I kind of agree more or less. Um, but like the, the CNBC and like press coverage stuff was interesting to me because I've seen a little bit, you know, of coverage, but um, I think you obviously have done a lot more research to find out, well, hey, it's obviously not getting as mark marketed as well to people as, you know, for example, Bitcoin. I mean, Obviously, like my grandmother will mention Bitcoin to me. She's just sent me an article, you know, hey, this is in the LA Times, like it's a scam, blah, blah. And I was like, am I still getting this article 10 years later down the road? Pretty funny. Um, but anyway, yeah, that kind of like press coverage stuff, like is pretty interesting to me. And, and like, I don't know, what are some things you would look for in kind of like just that narrative changing a little bit more. I, I mean, we've seen a bit, like I've seen the Ethereum price on CNBC recently, but yeah. you know, other than that, I, I think not to go on a tangent, but I did see an article about them saying, hey, you should get into mining Ethereum recently. Start now, get in early on the mining. <laughs> It'll yeah, never no. change. They'll never change the algorithm. Do it now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, I saw that too. I was like, wow, you're recommending mining you you literally are not in the space at all but i will say that i i you know releasing this report has been fascinating because so many people have reached out to kind of talk about their thoughts on the space um and i have realized that i think it's it's bigger issue within people who own ethereum than you'd think like i think a lot of people in the space they are at a level where they're comfortable uh, with the idea that it's a new technology. It's interesting to them. They're sophisticated and it's a small enough portfolio allocation that they don't feel like they can't sleep at night, but then they're not tracking the space day to day. So I've had so many people tell me, oh yeah, I've been in Ethereum since 2017. And I pause, I'm like, wow, you must know this way more than I do. Uh, I'm just going to like kind of humble up here. Uh, and then they'll proceed to tell me like, the issue is, you know, the fees are just too high. I just don't think it can ever scale. I'm like, okay, so so you really haven't tuned in since 2017. Like you never paused to kind of look at the space since you bought it. 
Uh, and Hey, like power to you for still being in it, you're positioned to do quite well, I think, <laughs> but it does speak to the idea that it's not just CNBC. It's not people who are outside of the space. I think it's, it's even people who are inside of the space just because it does take some amount of willingness to get into the weeds. Um, and I think the other thing is that most people don't have, there's no like quick checklist, right? So like when I own an equity, like, great, I'll tune in on the, the conference calls quarterly and I'll, uh, I'll check the 10 Q and the 10 K. Right. But like, you know, EIPs aren't coming out on like a quarterly earnings release <laughs> and, mm. and you just find out what the roadmap is and you don't have like a company that's like, you know, doing this like nice, clean, trusting, like roadmap for you. So a lot of people, they, they start to tune out the crypto hype on Twitter and then they tune out the, uh, the, they're almost tuning out too much. You know what I mean? They just don't hear the actual things that are changing. Um, so we're not, yeah, I think we're not gonna, we're not gonna see that narrative. People think people are like, oh, like the narrative's already happened. I, I don't even think we've started yet. Like, I just don't think people understand the space at all. Uh, and I think that's true. Of, if that's true of people who own the asset, like that's definitely true of CNBC, people who are just, who own none of it and are just kind of commenting on it. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff to come. And I think most of it is going to be, I think people underestimate the amount of media attention that's going to come from scaling because I think right now, all of the usage we're seeing, a lot of people talk about usage statistics increasing on DeFi. They're all coming because people are like, they're willing to interact with the space despite the fees. Um, so if you like, I can just imagine the number of products that are currently not viable uh, because of fees that like six months from now, we're going to start seeing massive rollouts of like retail products. And suddenly, like if, if I have a friend who's like, oh, this sounds interesting, like uh, might as well get into it. Like right now I'm like, yeah, there's also like a $200 fee to send $30 of, of either. It's not going to, they can't even experiment in the space. You know, it's not like worth it. The barrier to entry is too high. Um, but that barrier is going to get much, much lower. And when you get this massive adoption, the media has no choice. They have to cover it because everyone's in it. Uh, and that just can't happen without scaling. So, you know, maybe, maybe people are right. Maybe we'll never scale, but I think we're going to find out pretty soon that they're wrong. Um, and yeah, I think even May 28th, uh, Arbitrum is the first, uh, layer two that's going to release to mainnet. So that it might be coming sooner than we think too. <laughs> yeah. That optimism yeah. delay was, uh. Not great, but honestly, not to go on too much of a tangent, but like I've been pretty exploring like Polygon and Phantom recently, and I got to say it's really fast and very cheap to use both of them. And other than me, like feeling weird about bridging my assets over to another network, which like, I don't know, like I'm just a slow mover personally. It, it will take me a couple months to try something new. Like I literally try who's been defying since like, no, it's, uh, like it, a year and a yeah, half now. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I got, I didn't start exactly in DeFi summer, but I started like end of November, which was basically like the bottom of the last move. Um, so I just got some luck on that, but like, yeah, even back then it was like, I was paying 10, 20 bucks for fees and it was like reasonable. And now I'm like, I'm really like pension. I'm like, okay, do I want to make this move? Like, let me go into Excel and like write out the fees. Like, I'm not just like doing stuff. So like doing stuff on Polygon is literally like a fraction of a cent and like, 
is just like a snap of the fingers. Phantom was even quicker. Um, I haven't really used Binance Chain uh, and don't necessarily advocate for it, but it is the EVM. So like, you know, I got to tip my hat for them to helping us get some adoption. Like, honestly, a real advantage is just that I can just use my MetaMask and just plug in different networks and just switch in between them. Uh, and it's super easy, but you know. Yeah, I mean, part I of know. it's going to be that user experience too, right? Like, I mean, but yeah. it's like the user experience doesn't even matter if it's, if the fees aren't there. I, I don't think, like, I don't think the bottleneck is that we don't have enough fantastic engineers to make a great user experience. I just, that, I'm so skeptical that that's the issue, right? It's like, it's, I think there are, I mean, there's some like EIPs that are coming out to change the way fee markets work, uh, make things a little bit more convenient for, for user experience design, but like, big picture what's really holding us back right now is just like network congestion which is a solvable problem and you could argue yeah a solved problem uh it's just like rolling out um and yeah it's it's so many different solutions it's not just one right it's not like just yeah. polygon it's it's everything and it's all it's like now and in the next six months is, is the timeline which is you know right at the same time as eip right at the same time as Start EIP 1559 right at the same time as the merged proof of stake. And so that's, I mean, that's where my thesis is built on. I'm like, I was, I was looking at each catalyst. I was like, Oh, you know, normally I'm looking at these. I'm like, Oh, great. Like one catalyst here, like a year later, there's another catalyst or something. They're all like literally, uh, you know, <laughs> March, 2022, we're looking at a completely different asset, right? Like every aspect of the case for ether uh, when someone comes to me with a problem, I'm just going to say like, check your facts and I'm going to walk away. Cause it'll won't be true. Like in the moment, you know, they'll be like, Oh, the security, I'll be like, check it again. Cause it's different now. Proof of stake is, you know, orders of magnitude more secure, uh, you know, transaction fees, check it, like go to the markets right now, see what it costs to trade. Cause, and that, that's how you convince people. You don't say, Oh, in the future, like six months, you know, eight months from now, I'll convince people by just saying like, here's a link <laughs> go go like you can trade like two dollars on it if the fees are one cent you know what i mean and and yeah. i can't say that now but it's going to be pretty amazing to be able to do that and i think that's where the media coverage comes in because i mean that's another thing i, I didn't write this in my thesis at all but like DeFi's whole thing you know decentralized finance it's 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 a competitive dynamic right you're, you're not we're like we're creating something new here but like the idea is really to compete with traditional finance. And that's, you know, the podcast is called bankless, right? Like, uh, so the question is when you compare like the cost of transferring fees over Western union to the cost of transferring it over the Ethereum network via stable coin and the user experience for that as well. Right. So right now, like you, you have these expensive volatile fees and the user experience involves like a lot of like learning curves and things like that. Uh, but as soon as the fees come down, trust me, so many different people are going to come in and say like, oh, great. I have an account that seamlessly, like seamlessly allows you to put money in and transfer it without even interacting with the blockchain yourself. Like it's going to be run on the blockchain, but it's going to be an iPhone app. You know what I mean? And uh, that kind of competition is what I think a lot of equity analysts will understand. They'll be like, oh, shoot, this is money not going to this company. Where's it going? Ah, now it's going to crypto. I better cover this space. So yeah, anyways, if that's if that was happening in 2023, there's not much of a thesis there for now. But uh, if your tr markets are forward looking and 
Uh, I argue about even some effects that can't even be arbitraged in my paper, but um, if you're trying to front run that move, yeah, like right now, that's when you're, that's what you're doing, you know? Um, so yeah. For sure. Let me, uh, let me jump in with my fund manager pitch on like another parallel narrative to uh, also the old guy in the room here. Uh, kind of I've lived through the, the internet became a thing that the commercial internet became a thing, or, or at least the, uh, the non, uh, academic and the non DARPA internet became a thing. Um, basically you have web 1.0, web 2.0, web 3.0, right? Uh, web 1.0 was the internet, uh, AOL and chat rooms and, you know, Amazon and PayPal and eBay and all that sort of stuff came from it. And you had a, that was the big move. That was the internet size move. What that, that's what it was. It goes from, Basically, it takes our economy from, I think it was somewhere around 30 uh, trillion to 50 trillion, just going, becoming an internet economy. When the internet jumped in the world, it changed. And it, even back then, it, the internet, you know, and having a computer, you, had, you know, most people worked from computers in the early 2000s, late 90s to 2000s. It started happening, but it wasn't as prolific. And then Web 2.0 comes in and it's mobile. And so back to Web 1.0, as you were saying, the user experience in the very beginning, like you were a, you were a God, if you could do HTML, like you could name your price, people would be hiring you left and right, let alone a certified Cisco network administrator or something like that. If it wasn't easy to get your, get your hands on a server, you know, and, and a, a, like a static IP address to point uh, to your DNS so that you can say, uh, here's my website, www.blahblahblah.com. You know, it wasn't that easy to make that happen. Now we just, you know, go to WordPress or, you know, Squarespace or anywhere. And you're just like, I need a website.com. Boom. You know, and within like a few minutes, you have a, you have a website up. Um, so that, that became, you went from, I needed a server. I needed a coder. I needed a designer. I needed uh, to pay for bandwidth. I needed all these things to now you could just spin it right up. Right. To Web 2.0, you had you same thing comes out. It's just a mobile device now. It's this big, so now you need to know how to program in. Um, now I forget what Apple's. Jeez, what is their language? Uh, starts with an S. Uh, anyway, um, Swift, right? Swift. There you go. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, you know, you you or or Java or whatever in, in for Android. You know, like you had to have a really tough language, uh, and now you can build a web app pretty much, um, you know, just kind of like using basic web tools, you can make a web app. And of course, uh, you know, it, it doesn't require learning all that. It, 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 slowly it moved to user interface became awesome. You create an entirely new economy, the gig economy, you know, all those sort of things. Uh, you know, ironically, uh, the better, the fastest paying job out there is an Uber driver or Instacart or whatever you, the second you end that transaction, you're paid, you know, you know, within a little bit. And that, that's such a close analog to what crypto is like. You finish your smart contract, boom, you're done, right? And so as far as like getting people on board to figuring out how this is, instead of waiting for your paycheck at the end of the month or the every two weeks where every month they're fret, maybe this is going down the maxi Bitcoin maxi route, but every month the Fed's printing. So every week that you're not getting paid that value that you have sitting in there waiting for the company to pay you, 
is dropping slightly well, in value or is you have a- say, just like you, I agree, you don't need to go down the bitcoin maxi right you can just say like there are so many inefficiencies about around the fact that arbitrarily we have paychecks like delayed by four weeks or right. you know, like if i do the work today like why can't i buy dinner with the money that i earned from working today's eight hour shift right mm -hmm. and and that's like a administratively complex task but mm -hmm. that's incredibly simple for crypto because the time log i enter could literally just go to a smart contract that delivers that cash to my account in fact we could even have me log my time on and that money could gradually be transferred as I work. And I could, during the shift, I could buy like a taco with the money that I'm earning in the same shift, right? Like there, that inefficiency can seem small, but like that's happening for every employee of every job on the entire planet. And so I think like, just like you said, uh, you know, the value unlock is enormous and it's everywhere. And that even, that's not even, getting creative with how smart contracts could be used to do things we don't already do. Like that's just using like smart contracts to fix like weird arbitrary things that we do today. Um, but obviously people in DeFi are thinking much bigger than that. So yeah, yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. The, uh, the, the one of the things that this last, so, you know, this week, uh, oh, last week, Elon tweeted and, and made the internet angry. Uh, and, uh, but, but there was also some, uh, this is the, the FUD cycle, right? This is just the standard FUD cycle. And, uh, one thing that, um, I was mentioning in the past month, Ethereum went from about $2,000, 1800, somewhere around there, broke the 2000 and just pumped hard into the 4,400 level. Um, and what you got was like us three probably have had Ethereum of some sort over the years, uh, even if you know, whatever, even if we just read Squish's report here uh, a couple of months ago and just say, I'm buying, I don't know, April 27, it looks like, so a few weeks. Um, seemed longer than that. A lot uh, happens in crypto. <laughs> it's true, right? It's been a long week and it's already Monday. Um, the, uh, uh, but, but what you get, what, so, so with the price action, the way price action moves and the way markets really moves and what we're talking about is unlocking this speculative layer where it just goes, crypto has been the best uh, representation of that because it, it, you know, you have 25%, 50% up days and 50% down days. Uh, that, that's not something that is allowed in, in regular equity markets. Um, but what we have is we had all these late buyers come in and, and, and like show that experiment that we were talking about, the liquidity of where people started realizing, holy crap, Ethereum could take what was one of the narratives, the, the flippening. You know, we get that all every every couple of years. You get a flippening, uh, it, which is that you know, the number one top market cap crypto is Ethereum, not Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash. We did actually have a a flippening with the Bitcoin Cash thing for like minutes. I think it, maybe not, but it was close. Um, so we've had experiences with that. When when the price goes high, you get so many people that buy at speculative levels, right? And it drops down. So you, they bought at 3,500, they bought at 4,000, they bought at 4,300. They all got stopped out. They all sold. They're pissed off. They don't want anything to do with crypto. So we spend the next few months doing nothing. And then the next time they check and, and they come back and they see, and you see Ethereum at 5,000 or at 6,000, you go, 
I'm not doing that again. Nope. I'm not going to, I'm waiting for a dip. And we always see the dip not getting bought. Uh, and, and it's usually a shallow dip is the last opportunity that you have. And, and that's the way you get a strong bull market is you have everybody on the sidelines because when everybody's in, there's nobody else to buy. Right. But when everybody's shaken out, like they are right now, uh, they're going to have to chase and they're just going to continue to chase. There's some people that are going to say, whatever, I'm just going to own it. And, and, you know, I'm not leveraged and whatever, I'm just going to own it. And I believe in it. And I'll wait for the next squish uh, report to, to um, keep me excited or something like that. Uh, but that's really how you get a. That's how it really moves is when price takes off in a stealth rally that nobody notices until it's already at 3000. And then they see 3000 Ethereum and they're like, Ooh, 4,000. I got to get in. And I, I want to, cause I, first of all, I completely agree with you. And, and just to be honest, a lot of, a lot of you guys' work on trends, uh, I, that really influenced my thinking about how does trend following work? You need a diverse crowd. Uh, you need, you need to kind of climb the wall of worry. Um, so I completely agree with you. The one thing I want to clarify though, for listeners is, um, I actually, I think there are factors that exacerbate that with Ethereum relative to what you'd see in a normal asset. Uh, and so particularly in my report, I talk about how, um, in a lot of DeFi applications, uh, ether is locked as collateral, uh, for lending purposes. So the idea would be I put my Ethereum into this smart contract in return, I get this yield on it. Uh, and then I have an incentive as a result to just not touch it. Right. Uh, and in a lot of cases I can't even touch it. <laughs> um, and, and then the same second thing is, um, Ethereum's moving to proof of stake, uh, from a proof of work system. And so that proof of stake as a way of securing a blockchain, uh, involves staking your ether, which means locking your ether up, uh, and putting it kind of at risk to validate transactions. Um, and so that has a lot of different dynamics. One thing being that you get yield from that, but another thing is that all of the staked ether can't be touched either. Right. And so, uh, right now, I, I looked at it in my report. I was like, right now, if you add up the staked Ether, uh, because there's a little bit that's been staked before the merge just to kind of help the transition. Uh, yep. <laughs> so uh, if you if you add up the stake plus the uh, DeFi, the amount locked in DeFi, that's 12% of market cap, right? So I talk about in my report how like, great, so that's 12% of market cap. And then like you said, there's all these kind of narrative shifts we're seeing even now that are pushing it up 50%, 100% in these like short periods, right? But talk about in my report how I think we could very quickly see upwards of 30% of market cap locked and untouchable. So what happens when you see that kind of a reduction in the amount available to buy, right? Because right now in that narrative shift, mm. everyone goes to buy and any normal asset, there's sellers. But uh, what if those sellers have staked their ether? Right. So it's, it's not just like, in my view, that's a much more powerful force than a cultural kind of hodling mentality or a like uh, traditional, like I'm going to buy and hold forever uh, investing mentality, because it's, this is not a psychological force. This is an economic one. Right. So it's like, it's not just that you have to believe and have conviction. It's that you might've signed up to stake and the line, the queue in order to enter uh, into staking might at that point be a year long. Right. So then you have to make a decision. Do I unstake and sell knowing I can't come back and restake for a year or do I hold through this? And I think what you're going to see is, is just economically enforced illiquidity in the asset, you know? 
Uh, and so, and then, and then we come back to what you were saying, which is that exactly that you're going to have narrative adoption by a lot of people who, uh, are starting to get it, got freaked out, sold. Now they're going to come back. The price is going to be a lot higher. They're going to be waiting for the move. It's going to keep going higher. And when they want to finally come in, there's no ether to buy. And I think that's the unique part that I tried to bring in my report, uh, is that that's something that differentiates it from a normal uptrend. Uh, and that's what makes it so that I can have, instead of a, like, it's crazy because I'm arguing it's going to be more volatile than we've ever seen in a space that's already more volatile than we've ever seen. Right. And so I can't just say, I can't just say, Oh, Ethereum is going to come out with something new and different. And that's going to make it more volatile than all the other DeFi apps. Cause that's the entire crypto space is doing that all the time. Um, but what makes it this unique is that Ethereum is going to have specifically a supply shock, right? So then all the normal narratives will affect ether more than any other asset uh, at that time. And so that I think is what kind of makes things uh, really, really crazy in the, in the future. And it's also important to kind of set your perspective because your willingness to come to the market and sell, if you're modeling where prices could go on a just traditional framework or even a backwards looking framework, uh, you're not gonna expect the volatility we're gonna actually see. So you could very easily see people selling early and then FOMOing back in when they see like, oh shoot, it's at prices I never thought it could ever get to. Yeah, well, I mean, we could easily just look at Ethereum and Bitcoin right now. It's easy to it's easy to sit there and think, oh yeah, look at Polkadot, look at Comp, look at Aave, look at these. They just they started from nowhere and quickly pumped up. That's but that's that's typical in newer uh, newer products in the crypto space. But you know, fourteen hundred uh, Ethereum was just you know I remember talking about that back in twenty seventeen, and people are just like, that's you know that. And, and even in 2018, 2019, 2020, people like that never happened. 14, 1400 never happened. It's a $300 asset. Uh, or, you know, not $300 asset, but $300 price is the thing that everybody already always thought about it. Um, and yeah, it, you know, I remember talking about getting to the mid threes, thinking like 3,600 was my target. Uh, I knew that we were going to get there. And, you know, people kind of thinking that's nuts and, and getting to 26 or 20, 26, eight, I think was my price on Bitcoin. And people are thinking I'm nuts. And now people are like, I hope we don't see 26, eight, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's just been, it's only been a short period of time that we've seen this massive growth. Most, you know, like most of our traders here in, in our group, and I'm, I assume this is just not nothing special about us. Uh, it's just, that's who I talk to are up about a thousand percent in, in about six months. Uh, I yep. think, you know, a lot of people without leverage, I think there's a lot of people in that case and uh, in, in that area. And that's one of the easiest things to, to look at and think like, how can people not see that that's just pure speculative levels? We're just, we're just speculating, right? right? Like, well, you know, maybe Bitcoin, you know, because there has been a definite um, move. And, and I have been talking to OTC desks uh, and fellow fund managers that are saying that there are non-public company businesses that are buying. So they don't have to report, you know, right. uh, Tesla, Square, you know, uh, MicroStrategy, they have to report that stuff. Um, but, you know, ChrisDoversDonuts.com doesn't have to report uh, that, I, that I put, you know, $1,000 of my monthly revenue in Ethereum, you know, or, and, and you, you know, know, what's interesting is, is I'll say a lot of that, sorry to just interject real quick. A lot of that is based on uh, like 
the the Bitcoin narrative where a company is going to put this on their balance sheet because the Fed, the dollar devaluation. So the way you respond to that is if you completely agree that the Fed is devaluing dollars second by second, you say like, amen to that. And if you basically don't buy that at all, uh, and you're just like, what are you talking about? Like I earn dollars from my job. Everything's fine. This is complete overreaction. Then you're basically just like, the world has gone absolutely mad. And a lot of businesses might say like, we're not going to even consider this because of that, right? But I can easily imagine a world where payment processors are created or even Visa has to have a huge amount of Ether on their balance sheet, not just because it's a store of value, but because they're settling, like Visa might create a layer two and they're settling transactions every day, every hour on that layer one. And they need to have a store of Ether in case the price of Ether shoots up on them so they can settle transactions because uh, they can't just afford to have the prices vary constantly. So that's an interesting angle because a lot of people have been using it just as, again, a store of value. And it's kind of weird because we normally wouldn't think of Tesla as having an investment portfolio. You know what I mean? Like, it's just not, it's a new kind of argument. Some people buy it, some people don't. But uh, if, you know, in order to, in order for you to pay for your car, you would rather just pay for it in stable coins. Maybe Tesla needs a little bit of ether on their balance sheet just to facilitate you paying for your cars because now this is a payment processor, right? Uh, I don't know. Like, we're going to see how this space develops. But that's those kinds of arguments to me are a lot more powerful when they're framed from that kind of utility perspective. Uh, so anyway, I just, I just thought that was an interesting angle. I agree. I agree. I mean, there's one, one thing we've been talking about is like, if I have like, let's say I have, I don't know, $10 million uh, or I have a business unit that, that, that accounts for $10 million in revenue, uh, 20, 30% profit margin. Uh, and, and so, you know, 80, 70, 80% of that is the manufacturing, you know, design, manufacturing, assembly, shipping, uh, distribution, uh, sale, marketing, customer support, you know, uh, servicing, lawsuits, uh, you know, paying your sales staff, paying every person along that way. What if I just take that $10 million, well, probably more like a hundred million. What if I just took that $100 million business unit got rid of everything, all that overhead. And instead of having, you know, a, a 20 or 30% margin on a hundred million back, let's use a hundred million. It makes more sense. A hundred million dollar business where now I'm, I, I'm risk a lawsuit. I'm at risk of, uh, uh, you know, somebody coming in sick, people quitting product malfunction, um, you know, anywhere of the supply chain breaking any of that, or what do I do? I just go and you know jump into the DeFi world. I go stake uh, Ethereum, you know, and and I do know that there are companies running experiments experiments right now with way. And it, just think about the unemployment that that could cause if if everybody's sitting here thinking about like all these other things, like oh, I just don't need to have employees anymore, and my money will work for me. And then that just not in a bad way. It just moves the stack down, and so now you have a lot of money in that ecosystem doing smart contracts. Well, I think it it's gonna create it's going to move the jobs to DeFi to right? separate so like, areas yeah i, don't, yeah, I didn't so mean like, to put it in the sense of like absolutely. taking it oh, oh no we're gonna the robots are taking <laughs> our jobs i don't mean that. it's just it's just yeah if you're if you're uh working at a market maker uh right now and your job gets replaced by uniswap that doesn't mean you're just not gonna have a job it likely means you're probably going to be working on either 
like a Uniswap related project or something peripheral to it uh, because that's just the most competitive product out there, right? So maybe you work for a competitor, maybe you work for Uniswap itself. Um, there are you know a million ways that automated market makers are still a very early product. Like we're seeing something great, but um, yeah, I mean, that's it's fascinating to think about kind of what happens when an emerging technology starts to kind of uproot everything around us, right? Same thing, I mean, I'm a uh, graduated medical school and I think about like electronic health records and how suddenly everyone had to just uproot and take these paper records and move them online. And like, of course there were jobs that were quote unquote um, destroyed, but that's not true. Cause you know, there's still a whole industry that needed people to do, to provide services. Um, it just, it just changed. And that's what's cool. The space is just constantly changing. Yeah, I, I, I was actually going to ask that question. You, I think you answered a portion of it at the moment, but but being a, are you considered a doctor? Or are you just considered? <laughs> yeah, now I am a doctor as of a week. Official, <laughs> official. Let's let's call in. Let's call in the right way then, Doctor Nikhil, or is that? Is that, is that <laughs> yeah, I mean, doc, come on, doc. respect, man. <laughs> My apologies. No, um, no, I appreciate it. How would you? Um, let's just take a step and like, where would you see this working? in the medical field. Like, obviously we know the medical field is going to change. I assume, I assume the medical field is going to change dramatically over the next few years, technology, biotech, bioengineering, bioinformics. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea. Um, so one thing I want to be really careful about is I, I just, so I don't know enough about the space of health records in particular. I know there have been a lot of, like, it's not an original idea to think, Oh, maybe I could, put health records onto the blockchain. I know a lot of people have, have been toying with it and potentially testing it out. Um, and I don't remember exactly the details, but I just don't remember hearing a lot of great success stories coming out of that. I think the issue with healthcare is that in, so in a lot of other fields, the most rational actors are going to look at the upside from some near-term sacrifices and say, look, we gotta, we gotta decrease the regulation in this space because the innovation is going to come at such a huge benefit uh, that it dramatically outweighs the potential for like short-term harms. Um, in medicine, I think the history of medicine is just littered with examples where that gets taken advantage of. It's not to say there aren't tons of examples where we should have moved faster. You know, of course, medicine and healthcare innovation, like it needs to move faster and we need to deregulate certain aspects of it. But you can't have that like, wholesale like you can't like DeFi. DeFi is like open source right you, it's really going to be hard to ever have an open source approach to developing like private healthcare information uh record system uh unless you just literally don't care about your privacy or something you know so so um there are aspects of the blockchain that are fantastic for that um you have decentralized security so you don't have to worry about hacking in the same kinds of ways there are still security concerns but they are very different and potentially better suited. Um, no one, no one entity owning the system is also fantastic. So we like we get frustrated all the time where patients will come in from you know one hospital, but we don't have the records here. And you know the blockchain would be fantastic for for kind of solving those kinds of aspects. But it is just it's worth noting that you can't just uh, you can't just start a product up tomorrow the way you can for you honestly can for a DeFi app, right? Like if you have an idea today, like, and you know how to code solidity, like you can, you can get something running pretty quick for DeFi because 
you can just test it out like in small scale. It's a lot easier. And for healthcare, you know, for good reasons, we have, um, we have a lot more caution in the space, uh, because no one wants to participate, uh, with their health that way. <laughs> um, so it's going to take more time, but I think the way I see this space developing, I think, you know, it's obvious, but finance is such a great test case because it's so for one is you have a clear competitor. Uh, two is it's high stakes, uh, which means like something like security is just all important. And so in order to get, in order to get this working and competitive in finance, you have to solve a ton of problems that also need to be solved in order for you to effectively use it in other fields. Right. So I see the next, maybe and speculating on time horizons is tough, but maybe the next 10 years as the emergence of DeFi, but not necessarily the maturity of crypto, because there's a huge range of, of applications outside of finance that crypto can be applied to. Uh, it's just not getting that attention right now, right? So when, when, like right now, all the upside is in DeFi, eventually when it's priced correctly and adopted, uh, the upside will no longer be in DeFi, but that doesn't mean the upside's not in crypto. It could be, people talk about the metaverse a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, people talk about different kind of gaming and like whether the VR economy will be built on crypto rails. You know, it's, and 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 I think that's the kind of conversation where we'll be talking about using it for healthcare, where we have these very defined, um, understandable, and well-tested frameworks, where we're not we're not wondering how secure Solana really is. <laughs> you know, like at that point, we we know exactly how secure it is relative to uh, you know Ethereum, relative to Bitcoin. We have proof of work, we have proof of stake, and we have a number a number of other consensus mechanisms that have been tested we know what works doesn't so when we want to move your healthcare information on the blockchain it just feels a lot safer to people um so yeah so i'm excited about it because i think people have naturally come to the same conclusion which is that like uh let's go to the point of least resistance and uh, maybe for good reason maybe for bad healthcare is not the point of least resistance uh but there's a huge amount of upside in healthcare. So let's let's ground ourselves in, in this kind of finance applications. Uh, and then from there, we'll take on the behemoths uh, that, you know, healthcare is always so slow moving. But um, but yeah, it's, it's coming for sure. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, go ahead. Aaron. Oh, no, I was going to say, it's like the question where you're like, you don't need a blockchain everything, right? <laughs> I, I think <laughs> you, you meet... You gave me a, a flashback to DentaCoin, which was just like mm -hmm. a blockchain yeah. for dentists. Yeah. You know, do we really <laughs> need it? I don't know. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that was really interesting, dude, because like the way I think about kind of like the key areas of like at least ETH or whatever, it's just like, okay, 50, 60% DeFi, 40, 30% NFT, 10% some people are experimenting like right now like almost and yeah even with nfts like i think people are getting too lost on the art side of it because it's really just you know a digital contractual agreement that could be used for so many different things i mean including just medical stuff right like you know what you i was know, thinking just, about uh, yeah was was that you know nft i completely agree nfts like as art is just that's a narrative and if if that gets you to understand what it is then that's great but you could like nft video games so like as in the game like i was thinking about this too because we you know some of my friends and i will play different kinds of like 
just like group game, like board games and stuff. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember the name, but like, you'll, sometimes you'll hand out roles. Like someone will be like, um, the policeman. Some people will be like the, you know, the, the villager or something like that. Well, guess what? Like NFTs make some of these games way more fun and interactive and you can connect people all around the world in all these different ways. You could literally construct like a, okay, like, you know, you have a pirate ship. There are, you know, six crewmen. Each token allows you to be like on the crew and you have these roles. And if you don't like do your job, the token gets redistributed to someone randomly in the queue. And you have this game that's like playing live 24 seven all the time by someone somewhere. And you can just watch, I don't know. It's just, I mean, this is just me like spitballing, but it's kind of crazy because you can't like, cause you're totally right. It's an unconstrained technology. And the idea that an NFT just has to be the Mona Lisa in the digital age, it's like, I mean, I am incredibly enthusiastic about the way that it's going to help, you know, the arts monetize better. I think that's going to make the world a more exciting place to live in, but yeah, it's, it's not tapping into the potential enough. Right. Um, or I was talking to someone reached out to me who is in the music space and he was like, Hey, how do I get involved in crypto? But for music, and obviously like, okay, you can release your album on an NFT, but I was telling him like, you could also get creative. Like you could, you could release versions of the song uh, that kind of like blend into each other, depending on the weather. And you could use like a, you know, a chain link, uh, like an Oracle to kind of like change the music based on the mood and the mm. mood could be dictated by like the actual weather. You know what I mean? Like, That'd be cool. that, that's like and and that's what artists are like that's that's art right like that's not yeah. that's not like some technical application i'm talking about like culture like instead of preset playlists you could you could construct something really beautiful um and yeah i mean this space is just emerging so it's all about just like what can you think of right <laughs> which is kind of awesome yeah man yeah. that's no no i mean uh, and the last thing I was like, even right now, like Uniswap V3, right? They're using an NFT seven or they're using ERC 721 contract, which is an NFT um, for the LP position, which is super smart. And it is funny, have seen some people selling some on OpenSea, <laughs> <laughs> by the yeah. way, which is just like, all right, um, like have fun with that. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, it's cool. People are trying new things. Yeah, no, it's a it's a completely new space. It's really exciting. I think, yeah, I mean, collectibles are just a start, but like, I'll give you, you know, the the honest things. Like, I'm I'm still really early in my learning too, um, and I like most of what I know about DeFi outside of Ethereum is just enough to convince me to go all in on Ethereum, but not necessarily enough to uh, invest a lot in DeFi. But as I've explored, yeah, some of these things, like one thing I'm looking at is I wrote this huge investment piece. I got a lot of attention from it. Um, separately, I know that uh, writing is not a job that traditionally rewarded people. It was very hard to monetize, right? Uh, so now I'm looking into like, are there ways to monetize like investment research through an NFT where instead of having a traditional finance subscription service, I can have a limited edition copy of my research go out. There's 30 copies ever available and every week they're on auction. So if my research is more valuable to you this week, then guess what? Like you bid to see if you want to be like, you know, get my like IP that I created this week. And if, if like I am doing bad research and no one wants it, the price will go down. But if, if, if everyone wants to know what I think about, you know, Thor chain, then that might be 
a thousand X more valuable <laughs> than a Substack Substack scripture, subscription service. Yeah. And Substack is brand new cutting edge, but like DeFi, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just insane. And that's just me again. Like I haven't even looked into how to construct NFTs well, but the cool thing is like, if I sell a subscription service uh, research article and it's limited edition, other people can now sell, like they can resell my research and I can get a cut of that. That's a whole different model for writing, right? Where now the, the content is exclusive to 30 people. Those 30 people actually can sell the information to profit again. And I can get a cut and I can encourage that. You know, writing has never been monetized that way. <laughs> and, and neither has art, honestly. And so, so I mean, it's just kind of interesting because I'm not even in the space yet. <laughs> I'm just like getting in and, and I'm like investing and I'm writing and I'm, I'm like, oh, like I, I could do this just building off of what other people are, are setting up the infrastructure for and it could be massive. And so if I'm thinking that way, like once this gets real attention, I, I mean, everything's going to be built on DeFi rails, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's so cool to think about. Oh, I think that's that a great idea, dude. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. And, and, you know, like one other thing, like it definitely incentivizes performance, which is such a one, one thing we always talk about in, in our world is permissionless uh, meritocracies, where, you know, you, you, there no, you don't need somebody to tell you, congratulations, you just went through this as a doctor. Uh, you had to get credentialed nonstop, yep. and you will every year continue to maintain credentials and, that credential supports that credential and everything like that. You, you had to, there was a permissioned uh, meritocracy, right? Still good. Like the best doctor is going to sure. perform, but you know, that, that doesn't, there's, there's a lot of people that don't, that don't take the opportunity to go that route. Right. And they kind of feel it like it comes at a I, cost, right? Yeah. Anytime you have, anytime you have a permissioned system, your you, you, system pays a price for, for like regulation comes at a cost rules come at a cost. There, there are inefficiencies, right? And so it's like, if you, if you build that inefficiency in and you believe it's worth the cost, mm -hmm. that's an argument worth having, but it's just like, you know, take that cost seriously in every, and everywhere you encounter it, including in healthcare. Right. And so, so like, I, you know, I talked about how I'm like a little worried about it in healthcare. Cause I do see, I think I take the arguments on both sides much more seriously in healthcare uh, necessarily than I do otherwise uh, in other places. Um, just, I know the area and uh, I've seen a lot of like harm done in like clinical trials of uh, vulnerable populations and things like that. But man, I, I, both sides, right? Cause, cause healthcare is no different than finance in the other way too, where the upside is insane and yeah. you cannot uh, undervalue that upside. Um, and then, yeah, I get really skeptical of it. Then when I look outside of healthcare and I look at places where I think I'm like, Oh, I think that you're underestimating the upside here <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, and the downsides may be more limited uh, than kind of the arguments that I tend to encounter in healthcare. So yeah, I mean, permissionless, it's like not a coincidence that DeFi is so uh, exploratory right now. It's built for that. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like permissionlessness. Like when we were building the internet for the first time, it's you're doing something kind of the new frontier. But DeFi is literally like philosophically constructed to be permissionless and, and permissioned systems uh, get criticized insanely. Like, you know, if, if you have a Binance chain and people, people look at that, like it takes half a second for people to go, whoa, 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 whoa. If like 
you know, if the U.S. government wanted to just intervene and shut that down because they could shut down Binance, they could shut down Binance Chain. I just don't really take this product seriously in the same way that I take uh, the Ethereum layer one seriously. Uh, that's, that is not like a, uh, an argument that I see happening like on the fringes. That is, I think, how most people that I speak to view the crypto space where being decentralized is, is like everything. I mean, measuring decentralization is such a key feature of, of the analysis of any crypto asset. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's built to be more opportunity driven than anything else. And that's what unlocks the opportunities that the inefficiencies in a regulated system are opportunities for DeFi, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, a great example is, um, uh, Hayden, uh, uh, Hayden Adams, uh, he didn't need permission to build Uniswap. He just built it. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, uh, how they've, they've got like, they've got billions in their treasury to, to fund products. Right. So there's a, when we talk about the permission side of things, uh, you know, there is a permissioning once, let's say you want to build something on Uniswap and you submit your idea, you know, all this sort of things, the community can vote on that. Um, but you know, you can do it pseudo anonymously. You can submit your product project pseudo anonymously. It doesn't have to be, hi, I went to Harvard and, uh, you know, I, I, whatever, like I got an A in this class or, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, uh, totally. you just like, Hey, here's a great idea. And, you know, me and this person who can, you know, we were kind of budding developers, but we're going to make it happen. What do you think? And people are like, we think it's a good idea. Here's a million dollars. Go. Um, and you know, it can happen. So there, there is some permission side to it, but you can create literally, I mean, it, it was like a $30 billion Uniswap is a $30 billion market cap. Uh, when I was looking at it recently, I forget what it is now. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. It, it's a year. Is it a year, a little bit over a year old? <laughs> Uniswap's from like 2017, 2018. They were like, uh, the I first, mean, they're like, yeah. Or oh, this year. I mean, yeah, we, they hit like 10 billion volume, 8 yeah. billion uh, liquidity locked. I mean, with V3 just flipped, uh, v2 volume earlier today or something i think mm -hmm. and personally i haven't used v3 yet but uh it looks nice it looks yeah, pretty good. nice um yeah yeah i i used it uh a few weeks a week ago or something yeah it, it's it's beautiful <laughs> no the last thing i was gonna say on that i like just I, like crypto is just one of those spaces like like you said it's not, per it's, it's permissionless. There's a, a product called Alchemex, right? That got a lot of press coverage, entirely anonymous founder uh, that looks like a woman, but is a dude um, uh, basically. And it got a ton of mainstream finance love. And honestly, the project's doing pretty well. I don't ask me to explain it. it the loan repays itself. <laughs> it's not a scam for real, for real. Uh, uh, just can't and I unfortunately cannot explain it on gran granular level, but it's not a scam. That's for sure. <laughs> it's actually a really awesome. Pro Mark Cuban just aped like a bunch of money into it recently. It's a great pro project. Yeah. I'll say those things are interesting because so when I look at something like Alchemix, uh, and honestly, this applies to a lot of products. I I think the potential it it shows you. I think it shows you two things. One is it shows you the potential 
for creativity that can be unlocked in the DeFi space because this, yeah, this product really just required someone to just think bigger about what um, non-institutions would be willing to do. I mean, would like a private bank be willing to create this like structured product for you? Uh, if you're like a billionaire, like probably because they'll do anything you want if you're a billionaire, but like for everyday people now you can use that. That's pretty amazing. Um, I think the flip side of it that I've been thinking a lot about is I cannot imagine that this, this can't work without being taxed. Uh, is kind of the thing I, I wonder about because it's like we it's like the tax situation right now is so naive and in the, the scenario in which we win is a scenario in which the market caps get so large that you you know the government just can't afford to not tax it because it'd be literally like we're we're moving we're moving the financial activity from from traditional finance where it's taxed to crypto and so if it's not taxed on crypto then crypto just becomes the like tax haven we've we've like ended taxes right or something so if you like me are skeptical that that's going to happen <laughs> if i'm like yeah crypto's great but it's not the end of governments <laughs> um then the way that it's taxed is going to be very different and I, I as i'm like i'm starting to explore the DeFi space but i'm just paying a lot of attention to like the profitability of something like uniswap how does that change if you have to pay taxes on loan forgiveness right because right in normal and traditional finance you'd have to pay taxes on that in uh, Alchemix, uh, they're gonna, you know, your loan is gonna repay itself. But, and it's easy to get excited about that, and it is exciting. But uh, in a world where Alchemix does well, I think it would have to include that trans that transaction being taxed the same way that it would be taxed uh, outside of DeFi. So it's just something I'm keeping in the back of my head, right? Because I'm like, okay. Uh, this works, but does the math work in a world in a win scenario? Right? Because, because sure, if if DeFi is always on the fringes and it never matters enough to get taxed, then it's not a problem. But I'm also not filthy rich with my Alchemics investment. I mean, I, I'm not in Alchemics for now, right now, but you know, just hypothetically. Yeah. So it's it's just something I'm thinking a lot about um, as the space develops. You know? Yeah, we were getting some news yesterday too, like. Biden, Biden's like, yeah, we're going to want to report anything over 10K. And I was like, it's not even like, cool. Like, that's a that's a pretty obvious thing to do. And like, it's also not a law yet. So why is anybody freaking out? Like, nothing it's, is signed, you know, right? it's painted it's as normal. fear. Yeah. It's painted as yeah. fear. And it, I'm actually like, I've been thinking a lot about that because so like, I'm my portfolio is pretty much entirely Ethereum. It's like, I'm like 95% ETH and 5% a few things that might uh, like, you know, non-linear things that might get me more ETH purchasing power. <laughs> I mean, this is just my thesis and I'm all in on it, but I will say, so, so, so then I'm, I'm like, I did this research. I should look into DeFi um, and I see ETH as the best risk adjusted return and potentially the best um, absolute return, probably not going to outperform small DeFi projects, but compared to the bigger ones. Um, but uh, so, so when I'm looking at the space, I've started to shift to thinking maybe I should be looking at uh, what DeFi plays am I bearish on? <laughs> because I want to, so like I come into this as like uh, from like an investing perspective, not necessarily like a building crypto products perspective. So I want to increase my purchasing power. 
No, like that's what every move I'm doing is about increasing my purchasing power. Right. So right now, like being long Ethereum, I view as the best way to do that, but it, it does strike me like, okay, if, if, if I view taxes as actually affirming the thesis, like, like a win, a win looks like us getting taxed because we're so big that we have to be reckoned with and an infrastructure has to be built around that. But if the market views that as a sell-off event, that's a perfect, like that's the perfect thing, right? Is when, when the market sells off on something you think is bullish, yep. you want cash in that situation. So I'm like, okay, like, are there ways to, like, if I was to take like a, you know, a trend following approach to like shorting a DeFi token, like what DeFi tokens do I have the most bearish perspective on and why? Um, and I don't have mature opinions about that yet, but it's, it's something I'm starting to explore. Cause I'm like, honestly, like, I think if you're, if you're looking at it, like a lot of us who have a lot of conviction, like all of our purchasing powers in this space and from a portfolio management perspective, you know, if I could put 10% into like strategic nonlinear, uh, you know, short positions on stuff that I think is correlated to Ethereum, but maybe like a, a bunch of hot air. Cause it's not that that doesn't exist in DeFi either. You know what I mean? There's a lot of stuff that is nothing there too. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I mean, from a kind of portfolio management perspective, it, this whole like taxation, regulation, fear, uncertainty, uh, that's opportunity, you know, that's in something I'm thinking a lot about uh, right now. And, and definitely next couple of months, I'm going to be thinking more about how to safely take on the, take on, I'm going to think about how to safely bet against DeFi a lot more as it rises, just the same way that any smart investor is thinking about how to safely take a long position as it goes down, right? Because because that's where the opportunity is, is like, you want to be ahead of the move. Uh, that doesn't mean buying a falling knife, I'm not going to short ether as it spikes into a manic up move, <laughs> but it's just like, yeah, like taking like whether it's through through options or trend following, and then looking for things I actually think are frauds, rather than just I'm not gonna short ether. <laughs> you know what I mean? But if I can find something that I think is like there's there's nothing here, and and it's just gonna go up with ether, and then it'll fall apart either independently or correlated. Uh, yeah, that's uh, whenever I hear these like tax uncertainty things, I'm like that's opportunity, man. It's opportunity. Got to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, you got to get going here. So let me, let me, uh, make sure we cover the last little bit. I want to say, um, so his, so, so when we talk about, uh, the 30,000, 50,000 base case, uh, for Ethereum that is using the Bitcoin stock to flow model. It's using payment networks as a growth, uh, Metcalf's law, uh, a discounted cash flow model on year-to-date fees. So if we were just being fundamental investors, I'm sorry, fundamental and analysis in the crypto space, that gets us to about 30 to 50K. And, and we can't be too accurate on that because there's a lot of, trust me, I'm, you know, 200 to 400 on Bitcoin, uh, you know, like somewhere in there. We know that the, the, the accurate number may be like 29,200. But we, we also have to add the speculative nature and the volatility of the space. So 30 to 50 goes there. What gets us, and, and that's, trust me, that's more than 10X from here. And I'm excited about that. That's, uh, you know, that gets yep. me up. And that, that keeps me from going to my computer and being like, oh, 
what thing can I do today? Where can I move my money today? Oh, I can go and chase this project. I can go and chase this project. I can move it around. It, it keeps me from doing that sort of stuff as, you know, I have a Bitcoin model myself, uh, you know, and, and of course I have my own shitcoin strategy too, but, um, but ultimately I know where it's going to go. I know where my projections are. That keeps me from spending all day staring at my screens and giving me the opportunity to go out on hikes and spend time with my family and all this sort of stuff, because I know where the outcome is going to be, or I have a good, a good understanding of the outcome. Now, look, 30 to 50,000 Ethereum, probably the most optimistic I've heard people talk about anyway in, you know, forever. So you already are blowing people's minds with 30 to 50 K and you get to those numbers pretty pretty well, much like the, you know, two bit uh, stock to flow model on Bitcoin, you know, has adopted and, and like proves itself out. You've pretty much been able to prove the 30 to 50 out uh, on its own EIP coming up, EIP 1559 coming up. Let's talk about how you see the, like, let's kind of stack it and package it really nicely. How you see 150 happening and, and, and just like maybe a minute or two on just like boom to boom to boom to boom. Yeah. Okay. So um, May 28th, Arbitrum comes out. That is a scaling solution. Uh, so we're going to start to see the whispers like, hey, um, the Ethereum network is is able to scale. It's a little cheaper, easier to use. Um, July 14th, EIP 1559 comes out. The uh, That will do kind of two things. One is that it actually is a decline in selling pressure because you're burning a lot of the ether that would normally go to miners who are going to sell. So that's going to have the effect of about as a 30% decline in selling pressure. So a little less than half of one Bitcoin having event, right? So I think that that's either, so in the long term, I think that alone would cause another like huge up leg in price. Uh, in the short term, it's going to do the same thing that the Bitcoin having events, which is going to, it's going to eat up that overhead supply. So like right now we just sold off from 4,000 to 2,000. There's some overhead supply. If EIP is happening uh, when this type of thing happens, uh, the increase in activity that you see on the network as you sell off actually eats into the supply. And then as you go back up, you have supply decreasing and decreasing. So it just is a nice like lubrication to the up move as you rebound, right? Um so that's that's the start, and that'll be operating, you know, forevermore. Um, that's also going to start to create some much stronger noise around Ethereum as a store of value, because when you have uh, EIP one five five nine, you can start making the case that Ethereum is going to be deflationary, uh, and so people will start paying attention. I think the price at this point is continued continuing to go up, um, but it's still possible that it's going to be largely correlated with the rest of the market. It's incredibly possible that Bitcoin could still be keeping up. Uh, or at least, you know, going up enough that that's where a lot of the attention is. Um, but I think, yeah, we'll start, we'll be seeing these significant moves. Um, then that's going to lead us into uh, the merged proof of stake. That's going to happen uh, right now. It's scheduled for, we're expecting mid-November. There have been some whispers of trying to bring it earlier into October. There's always some concern and a, a, kind of the expectation of delays. Maybe it can go to December, January. Uh, but I think a lot of people agree with me when they say that's where that's the money event is in proof of stake, right? So EIP 1559 is important, but proof of stake is everything. Um, if, if, if I say there's three halvings, 0 0.5 of that is 1559, 2.5 of that is proof of stake, right? So, so when the merge happens, the entire goal of proof of stake is to shut off the miners 
all the sell pressure from the miners is gone. And it's not that it's replaced with nothing, but it's replaced with uh, however much the stakers need to sell in order to, um, you know, in order to manage their very limited expenses. Now it costs almost nothing to stake. So those expenses are going to be largely just taxes really. Right. Uh, nice thing about taxes is you don't, you don't need to be paying, you don't need to be selling constantly throughout the year. Um, and a lot of these people who stake absolutely, especially the early ones. And I think a lot going on, we're going to restake their yield. So, um, we're going to see as a dramatic decline in sell pressure pretty instantaneously, uh, like the Bitcoin having, that doesn't mean on the day of the having, you're going to have a huge uptick in price. It's not what we've seen in Bitcoin's having event it takes three months typically to get things to kick off. Right. So, but if we have a November proof of stake merge, that means I think January by January, we're going to start to see like, we're, if we're going to start to see us kind of breaking up to new highs, uh, by January, February, that's going to start happening. Um, people are going to be seeing these incredibly high yields. Cause as we go up to new highs, fees go up. That means more Ethereum is going to get burned. It's going to be more deflationary yields are going to go up. The narrative is going to accelerate because the higher the price goes, the more activity you see on the network, the more conviction people have when they say it's a deflationary store of value, the more conviction people have when they say this yield is too attractive to pass up on. That's when the media picks up on it, right? This is going to come alongside more scaling solutions being released. And with the scaling solutions comes legitimacy to the entire project. Because now when the media covers it and someone says, and someone on CNBC, like, you know, Sorkin's going to be like, oh, uh, but last time I looked at this, this can't scale, they're going to just say, look again. So now you're going to have yields shooting up, deflation. Uh, you're going to have scaling. And the media is going to cover that because the price is going to be at insane levels. Like, so this is, this is where we could start to see, you know, 30 to 50,000. I think if I'm calling for 150K by January 2023, uh, 30 to 50 K could happen anywhere in that range, like March, 2022, obviously the timing is highly speculative, right? But, um, that kind of area where you have some time for proof of stake to have settled in for the narrative to kind of have moved flows, uh, and for people to really pick up on it. Um, and then how do you kind of get that last break out? Well, a couple of things happen. One is narrative adoption is going to increase actual adoption. So I think that a lot of these valuation models, I just talk about how there are lots of on-ramps for them to be revised upwards. The analogy I would use is that if you look at Tesla stock, you might be highly skeptical of the underlying fundamentals. But if you look at the way the narrative has changed, it was entirely predictable that as the price went up, analysts started to reach farther with their valuation models. They started adding things like robo-taxis to their valuation models, right? So you might disagree with that as a decision, but don't say it wasn't predictable, right? And same thing. I'm not saying here that the most accurate valuation model is going to say 150K, but if Ethereum is at 50K, there are going to be a large number of analysts who will say, my valuation model says 300K and here's why, <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, that's going to come in the context of dramatic illiquidity as more people stake, as more people put their money into DeFi. So you're going to have 30% of the market cap locked away. You're going to have the price at 50K and you're going to have um, this like kind of amazing competitive solution. And then wildcard, we don't know when this is going to come out, but we expect an ETF to come out. We know Canada has already released both Ethereum and Bitcoin ETFs. We know the US usually lags behind, but that 
if it works out in Canada, the U.S. is going to run out of reasons to not also approve it here. And by then, we'll have had 12 months of evidence that this worked in another country. Uh, and so I think that 12 months from now, if the SEC is looking for evidence that this can happen in a kind of protecting the consumer way, uh, they'll have that evidence. So the exact timing around the ETF is highly uncertain. But in that context, that bomb is going to drop. And that is going to shoot the price up. Um, I talk about in my paper how that'll shoot the price up in anticipation, but that's not um, a flow that can be arbitraged in because uh, no matter how it, how it works uh, in anticipation, when the actual ETF happens, the ETF is going to be highly liquid because people can buy the ETF. They're just sending money to the ETF provider. The ETF provider has to turn around and put that money into Ethereum. There's not going to be any Ethereum left to buy. Right? So you're going to have 50K price, no Ethereum left on the market to buy. You're going to have a significant flows to buy it. And you're going to have valuation models that now affirm it. Right? So I've been watching analysts upgrade and I kind of I joke around it in my report, but it's entirely predictable where I think 12 months from now, valuation models are going to reflect that kind of narrative change. And so in that context, could I see it hitting 150K? Absolutely. But what I'm saying right now is there's this black curtain ahead of us where no one can see what the world looks like ahead of proof of stake. And so in a world after proof of stake and EIP 1559 have already come through and that event risk is off the table, it's a perfect storm. Man, that right there was it. That's the, that was, uh, I, dude, Aaron, let's go buy some Ethereum at stake more. Uh, I was going to buy more. I was going to say to our listeners with the 150K target, you only need 10 ETH to be a millionaire, by the way. Just fun or hundreds or a hundred or a hundred or a hundred thousand. Uh, you know, I, I definitely am at the point where like I have a lot of DeFi, but I feel like, I'm going to have a good rotation opportunity in the next couple months. I'm going to be going heavier on ETH, but um, yeah, man, thanks for all that. That was amazing. That was incredible. Yeah, it was, uh, it was good. All right. Um, where did you want to send people to find more about what you're doing? I know. Yeah. So um, follow me on Twitter um, at squish chaos is my investing Twitter. Uh, I also have a Substack, stack. Um, like I mentioned before, not sure exactly what I'm going to be posting on the Substack, but by subscribing to my Substack, I know that you want to hear about what I have to say. Uh, and so I've been kind of any, any idea, even if small ideas I've been sending to my Substack, Substack subscribers, uh, even things outside of crypto. Uh, cause I do think about just investing at large. So definitely check the Substack out and yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm going to continue to be active on Twitter and really try to take accountability for my thesis as things go on. You know, it's easy just to be cryptomania, but I, I like to think that I did this rigorously. And that means that as evidence comes out, if it does falsify aspects of my thesis, I want to be honest about that. Cause I think I like others have too much money on the line to just, to just confirmation bias my way through this whole thing yeah. so you know i gotta if i can find out i'm wrong i want to find out quickly and i'll tweet about it if i do but i think i'm right <laughs> all right ask squish chaos and then that's squish.substack.com for that man it's been it's been incredible hanging out uh we'll have you back on uh especially if you get something else out there uh you know uh you know hit ping me as soon as you do it obviously i'll uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to remind me anymore. 
I'm there. <laughs> I'm on it. Sounds good. Yeah. It, it was a great chat. Loved it. All right. Okay. Hold on.